Well, it's great to be back two weeks in a row with y'all. And today we're talking about love. So what is love? What is love? That's right. Just like that Hathaway song from the 90s. That was great. Um, yeah, but there's so many songs about love, right? Love is a battlefield. Love hurts. Um, uh, you know, all, I need, all you need is love. There's so many. We're constantly hearing songs trying to figure out what love actually is. In fact, for the past several years, the most Googled phrase has been, what is love? Seems like everyone is trying to figure out what it is. So what do you think of when you think of love? Maybe you think of your grandmother, or, or maybe you think of your spouse or your wedding day. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of wedding season. Uh, so if you're like me, you're going to weddings all the time for the next uh, few months. Yesterday, I, I did a wedding. I officiated a wedding. It was beautiful. It was out on the beach. Uh, it was like 1,000 degrees outside, and I was in a suit. So I mean, it was a little rough, and, uh, but it was beautiful. And, um, and they're a real cute, fun couple, and... Uh, I've never had this happen to me, and I think I've officiated like 30 weddings now, but while I was doing the little homily, you know, the little sermon, the charge to the couple, um, the groom just started like kissing his bride, and, and, and it, he just kept doing it, and so about the seventh kiss, I was like, dude, are you even listening to what I'm saying? And he said, no, I'm not, and so, um, you know, they love each other, right? And uh, Weddings are fun. I really enjoy being a part of weddings because at a wedding, two people forsake independence, isolation, and all others. Two people vow to one another their undying love. Um, I love hearing, you know, Aunt Gertie try to hit the high note in the Lord's Prayer. I love when first cousin once removed Harry is nervously reading 1 Corinthians 13. Like, I love everything about a wedding but before we get to any of that, before the couples make their vows, before any of that other stuff happens, I always start the wedding with a declaration of intent. Before we do anything else, I ask the couple to declare their intention to forgive one another as in Christ God forgave them. I wanna hear them make that declaration. I wanna hear them say that that's their intention. Their intention is to forgive this other person just as God forgave them in Christ. Because you see, the key to love, the key to lasting love is forgiveness. Without forgiveness, love doesn't stand a chance. If you wanna be a loving person, you have to be a forgiven one. So today we're gonna look at a story, a very famous story, one that Jeff already set up for us, a story about a religious man, Simon, a Pharisee, inviting Jesus over for dinner. And while he's at dinner uh, with Jesus, uh, this adulterous woman, this woman who was known for her sin in the community, comes and crashes the party. And as I read the story, I want you to be able to picture, I want you to be able to put yourself there. And so I wanna give you a little bit of context of what this experience would have been like. Back in those days when a prominent religious man invited another prominent religious man to dinner, it became a community affair. And so when Simon invited Jesus into his house, everyone in the town would have wanted to come and be a part of that. Now, whether or not they were invited to actually sit at the table, they still would have come to be observers. In those days, you know, you had houses with these huge cutouts for, for windows, and so people would be just kind of like looking in the windows, or they might even go into the house and kind of stand along the outside of the walls and just observing what was happening at the table. 
And at the table, it would have been a low table, so Simon the Pharisee and Jesus would have been sitting down on the floor with their feet behind them. They would have been engaging in conversation, and everyone else was, was allowed to just kind of listen in, see what they could learn from the conversation that's happening. So I want you to picture that as I read this pretty familiar story. It's found in the Gospel of Luke in the seventh chapter, and I'm gonna start reading in the 36th verse. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. Jesus desperately wants to make us people who love. In John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people, everyone will know that you belong to me by the way you love. Jesus is determined to make us into people who love. And here in this story, we get a pretty stark contrast between someone who loves and someone who doesn't. So what's the difference? What made the difference between Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman? Well, both are seeking Jesus. In this story, we don't have a story where one is seeking Jesus and the other is hostile towards him. In this story, we don't even have someone who's interested in Jesus and the other person is indifferent. No, both of these people are seeking Jesus. And both are seeking him uh, bravely. It actually took a, a, a certain amount of courage for them to seek Jesus. For Simon, the, the religious man, the Pharisee, it took a lot of guts to invite Jesus into his house for a meal. In that culture, to invite someone into your house was to invite them into friendship. So this religious, uptight man invited Jesus, who is a known friend of sinners. I mean, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard by many simply by the company that he kept. 
And so it took a lot of, of guts on the part of Simon to invite Jesus into his house. What would people say about Simon? And of course, it took a tremendous amount of bravery for this sinful woman to come crash the party. I mean, it said her sins were known by the community. I mean, by, by approaching Jesus in that moment with this religious man, I mean, she could have been shamed. She could have been thrown out. It took a lot of courage for her to seek him. So you have two people, both seeking Jesus and both seeking him bravely. But one loves and one doesn't. So what's the difference between the two of them? Forgiveness. One sought Jesus as a savior and the other sought Jesus as an example. Now I want you to picture this scene. Now imagine that, I imagine that this woman showed up and didn't immediately go and throw herself down at Jesus' feet. I bet she heard that he was there and she just wanted to get close to him. So she's probably standing up against the back wall, just hoping nobody will notice her just so that she can get a glimpse of Jesus. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe some of you show up at church and, and you, wanna, you wanna find kind of the darkest spot in the back where just maybe you won't be noticed. And I imagine that she's standing back there and, and as she's hearing Jesus talk, as she's hearing the, the voice of her Savior, as she's hearing the one who, by definition, is grace, she just, she just can't contain herself. She's thinking back on all the bad choices she's made, all the ways she's used her body for evil, all the ways she's broken other people's lives, the, the families that she's torn apart. And then here's the one who's gonna offer her forgiveness and mercy and grace, and she can't help but just cry. Martin Luther calls her tears heart water. And I imagine she falls down at Jesus's feet as a response because she's watching this interaction between Simon and Jesus, and she's seeing how Simon is, is keeping Jesus at an arm's length. That, that, that Simon is not responding to Jesus the way that Jesus deserves to be responded to. See, Simon wants to learn from Jesus, but in a detached way. He comes to Jesus intellectually. And he's turned off when he sees this woman touching him because Simon didn't want a religion of touching. He didn't want it to get messy. He just wanted to know what the right way to live is. Just give him his next right step and that's all he needs. He doesn't want Jesus. He just wants Jesus's teaching. Do we come to Jesus primarily with tears or with pen and paper? Do we come hoping to experience love, or do we just want three steps to being a more loving person? Now, if Jesus isn't your savior, he is a good example. I mean, if, if all of us lived life trying to follow Jesus's example, life would be better. Life would be better if we didn't lie, if we didn't commit adultery, if we put others first, if we lived a life of service, that would be a better way to live. But just following Jesus's example will not make you love. It will not break down the selfishness in your heart. To follow Jesus's teaching will not just melt you. It won't make you erupt in heart water. Only forgiveness can do that. You can only love if you've been loved and you can only love to the degree that you've been loved. So how do you get loved? How do you experience love? But Jesus says it's through forgiveness. At the end, he tells Simon, he says, look, those who love much, they love much because they've been forgiven much. 
And those who love little, love little because they've been forgiven little. Jesus says, you and I, our ability to love other people is directly proportional to how much we've been forgiven. Loving others starts with being forgiven. And Jesus gets this. And he knows that because Jesus wants to make us into people who love. Because the world will know who he is by how we love one another. And Jesus doesn't just want this adulterous woman to get it. He wants Simon, the religious man, the the Pharisee to get it as well. As you read through the Gospels, I'm amazed at how often Jesus goes after the Pharisees to try to help them to get it. Now, when we read the Gospels, a lot of us read it and the Pharisees are the bad guys. Like, they're always the bad guys in the story, but they're not really bad guys. A lot of them weren't. A lot of them were trying really hard to figure out what, it would, what they needed to do in order to please God. They'd spent their whole lives devoted to trying to figure out what it meant to be a person fully devoted to God. And you see Jesus time and time again to try to show them that they're loved, not because of what, they do, what they've done, but in spite of it. The novelist Flannery O'Connor once wrote of one of her characters this sentence. There was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. That perfectly describes the heart of a Pharisee. Perfectly describes the heart of someone who through religion is trying to get right with God. But Jesus is determined to make us people who love. And so he fights through that. He fights for us. And we see him, I think, in the story, fighting for Simon. The the woman kind of is the one you most think of when you think of the story, but I think this is a story where we actually see Jesus' heart for uptight religious people. Because you see Jesus going after Simon's heart, and he does it in a couple ways. First thing he does is he responds to Simon's doubts. It's real interesting. If you you noticed, it said when when the woman was making the scene at the feet of Jesus, it says Simon thought to himself. This is not something Simon was saying out loud. To himself, Simon was thinking, oh, this man isn't who he said he is. If this man were a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him, that she's a sinner, and he would have no part of this. But then Jesus speaks into his thoughts, speaks into his doubts, you ever had that experience with Jesus where you, you've been thinking about something? Maybe there's some doubts about who he is and then you're surprised because maybe a friend calls you and says something and you're like, oh, that's it. Or maybe you are doing your daily devotions or you're reading God's word and then all of a sudden, whatever it is you were thinking and doubting about, God gives you an answer. See, Jesus, by answering Simon's thoughts, is saying to him, you can trust me. I am who I say I am. I am a prophet. I am the truest prophet. And then once he does that, he tells Simon the gospel. And what I love about this is that he tells the gospel in a way that Simon could get. He contextualizes the gospel in a way that Simon would want to be a part of it. See, Simon had invited Jesus over for an intellectual discussion. He he invited him over to have some kind of debate. And so in presenting the gospel, Jesus comes after Simon and he says, all right, I'm going to tell you a story and then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to invite you into an intellectual dialogue with me. And this is the story he tells. He says, two people 
owed a certain money lender money. One owed him a lot of money and one owed him a little bit of money. But neither of them could pay. They were both broke. So the money lender forgave both the debts. And then he says, all right, now which one will love him more? In that question, Jesus is inviting Simon to get it, to get the gospel. He's inviting Simon to see his need for Jesus, not just as an example, but as his savior. And I think what's so brilliant about the story is that there are two people in it. There are two people who owe money and they can't pay. And in that day, if you couldn't pay your debts, it didn't mean you just lost everything. It also meant you went to prison. So Jesus is saying to Simon, he's saying, it doesn't matter how bad a life you've lived or how nice a life you've lived. You owe and you can't pay. We all owe. It doesn't matter if you owe 10,000 or if you owe 1,000. 1, <laughs> if you can't pay, you're in trouble. The other day I was at lunch uh, by myself and I was eavesdropping on a family lunch because as a pastor, you need sermon illustrations. So just know if you ever see me, I might be listening to your lunch conversations. And, uh, and it was a mom and her two what looked like college-age kids. I think they were just back. And the, the brother and sister were arguing over whose room was least messy. And, and it got really heated. And I don't really know why the conversation got started, but it was getting heated. And then the mom finally like shouted pretty much like, you're both still pigs. And the conversation stopped. <laughs> and as she said that, I thought, she's right. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. See, Simon and this woman might be different degrees of messy, but they're both still pigs. See, Simon, for the most part, has lived a nice life, a very moral and respectable life. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, you've tried really hard to be good. Maybe you've been very religious. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you've tried to do all the right stuff. Or maybe you come in here and you feel a lot more like this woman. And you feel like you've really messed up and you've really messed up other people's lives and you, you just don't even know where to turn. What Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. You're both still lost. You're both still messy. You both still owe and you both can't pay. You both need me. And then he goes on to say, and you're both worth it to me. See, the money lender he forgives both the debts. He doesn't just forgive the debt of the one who had the greater debt and say, all right, well, you just have a little bit of debt, so why don't you go and work that off? No, it says he cancels the debts of both. Both are forgiven. He's looking at Simon, who I'm sure thinks has the l less debt, but maybe that's not even true. And he's saying, hey, I'm forgiving both the debts. And see, forgiveness of a debt always means somebody pays. It just means the debtor doesn't pay, but the moneylender paid. It costs the moneylender something to forgive the debt. That always happens with forgiveness. If you hurt me, if you wrong me in some way, and I go after you, and I seek retribution, you pay, you get hurt. But if you hurt me, if you wrong me, and, and, I, and I don't seek retribution, then I hurt. With forgiveness, there's always a cost. Somebody always gets hurt and somebody always pays. And Jesus is looking at Simon and he's saying, don't worry about her debt. You've still hurt me. 
you still have a debt that you can't pay. And I'm willing to pay for yours too. The reason I think we don't weep every time we get in the presence of Jesus, the reason you and I don't surrender everything, the reason we don't act more like this adulterous woman is that we don't see the cost. We don't see the debt. After proving to Simon that he is who he says he is, and after telling Simon the gospel, Jesus then begins to list to Simon all the ways in which he's done wrong just in their dinner time together. He begins to list off his sins, all the ways he's, he's missed the mark. See, he doesn't want Simon to be able to avoid him. He's making Simon come face to the face with the reality that he owes and he can't pay. Have you been avoiding Jesus as savior by seeking him as your example? Jesus ends, or the story ends with Jesus looking at this woman and confirming to her what she already knew, that she was forgiven, that she was washed clean. It's like when David, when King David wrote Psalm 51 after he had sinned in just tremendous ways, he writes, you know, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Jesus is looking at this woman. He's saying, you are forgiven. You are cleansed. She's behaving the way she's behaving, not in a way to try to earn God's forgiveness, but as a response to it. And that becomes so clear because in verse 47, Jesus tells us that. He says, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. See, our love shows our forgiveness. How we love shows how much we've been forgiven. If you know you're forgiven, you can love one another. Because loving others starts with being forgiven. So how, how are you doing in your, in your relationships? And the relationships that are important to you, relationships that are supposed to be characterized by love, maybe with your spouse or with your children or with your parents or with your best friend. Are those relationships characterized by forgiveness? Husbands, how often do you go home and, and ask your wife for forgiveness? And I don't just mean like admit that you did something wrong. I mean actually ask for their forgiveness. And wife's the same. And parents, how often do your kids hear you say, hey, please forgive me. This is something I did wrong and I would like your forgiveness. For kids, I don't even know if there's anything more powerful than that because kids grow up thinking their parents have it all together. And if you're modeling Christianity for your kids and it looks a lot more like Simon's uh, religion, it looks a lot more like do's and don'ts and living this upright, perfect life, that, that's gonna kill, that's gonna weigh your kid down. But if your kid knows that your religion is all about forgiveness because they see you modeling it, because they see you asking them for their forgiveness, that's totally different. So how are you doing in your relationships? Would, would the relationships that are most significant and most important to you, would the other person say, this, per, this person asked me for forgiveness all the time? I mean, especially husbands and wives. Every day there's something that we could ask forgiveness for. At the beginning, I talked about weddings, and, and I, you know, I, I said, 
a lot of weddings that I do, I hear 1 Corinthians 13. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a beautiful passage, and that's why people pick it for weddings. But I don't think people ever actually listen to what it says. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I try really hard to listen to 1 Corinthians 13 when it's read. And so I want to read it to y'all real quick. I want, I want you just to listen, because uh, this is probably a passage that you don't go to very often. It's, you just hear it at weddings. So listen to what 1 Corinthians 13 says, and I'm going to start in the fourth verse. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is God's word. Do you think any bride and groom are hearing that and thinking, we got this? I hope not. Because they're, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Every time I officiate a wedding and I hear someone read that, I think, wow, I've got to remember to ask Kelly for forgiveness tonight when I get home. Yesterday was, um, it was actually a pretty tough day um, I did this wedding, and it was beautiful, and the couple was great, and it was great to be a part of their ceremony. But a buddy of mine texted me just minutes before the ceremony started uh, that his wife had come and, and handed him papers to start the divorce process. And, um, and I met with, with both of them, um, and as far as I can tell, there are no biblical grounds for their divorce um, but what had happened was years of, of lack of forgiveness, not asking for forgiveness, and, and years of building up bitterness and resentment so that one of them uh, had built up a wall around their heart where there was, there, was no, there was no love, absolutely no love, because there was no forgiveness. How do, how do we combat that? Well, I, I can't help but think that when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, when he writes, love suffers long, how could he not be thinking of the one who cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or when it says that love keeps no record of wrong, how could he not be thinking of the one who, as he was crucified, said, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. They don't know what they're doing. When he says love always protects, that it always hopes, how could he not be thinking of the one who turned to the criminal hanging next to him who had no opportunity to change, had no opportunity to prove his worth and say, today you will be with me in paradise. When Paul wrote those words, how could he not be thinking of the one who on the cross cried out, it is finished. I mean, this is a man who's lost everything. He's been beaten and bullied and bruised and spit at. This is a man who's dying an agonizing death, and he, he begins shouting, I, I imagine, almost gleefully. I, I, I think a lot of times the depiction is like this, like really heavy, like it is finished. I think Jesus was saying, it's done. I did it. 
I did it. He's so, he's so pleased that he has accomplished his task. And what was that task? To pay our debt. Love never fails. Love always perseveres. So here's the point. We can take a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 and we could try to figure out steps of becoming a more loving person. We can approach Jesus and the scripture as, as a set of principles to live by so that we can be a person of love. But we have to know that that's not gonna change our heart. That it will only produce guilt. It'll only make us wake up every day and think, oh man, I've gotta try even harder today. Or Jesus says, or you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. One of the things we've been trying to talk about a lot in this series is that the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus says, is just a gift. When Jesus talks about in John 15 that he's the vine and we're the branches and, and if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit, what he's saying is if, if you're with me, if you've surrendered to me, that, that fruit will just start oozing out of you. This isn't something you have to try to figure out on your own. No, just be with me. Just stay around me. Just watch me. Read about me. Listen to me. And all of a sudden, you will begin to see places of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it all starts with being forgiven. Jesus says, those who love much have been forgiven much. Those who love little have been forgiven little. Loving others begins with being forgiven. Us being people who are characterized by love is us being characterized as people who needed a savior. So let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for the truth that we are loved, that we are people who have been forgiven. And Father, I ask that you would make us as a church family a church that is characterized by love. Not just because we do a bunch of good stuff in our community, but because we're people who know that we've been forgiven. There were people who go and share with other people that they can receive the forgiveness that's found in Jesus as well. And Father, I pray as we come forward and are reminded of the cost of that forgiveness, that you would begin to open our hearts up to forgive those who it just seems like it's gonna cost too much. And Father, only you uh, can do that for us. And so we ask that your spirit would continue to work in us, through us uh, during this time of communion. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.